Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning as we come to near the conclusion of our study of this letter, this book, Paul to the church in Colossae. We'll be in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, hear God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Then for us, he says this in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God, may it stand forever. Um, Well, we're coming to the close of, of this book. We have this week and next week. And really, this week is the last week in which Paul, in this letter, is teaching uh, and communicating a, a pedagogically to the people in Colossae. And for the last couple of months, what we have found ourselves in is in the weeds of the details of the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, which has been these specifics of what the gospel looks like when it is applied to these various roles in our life, whether it be marriage or parenting or uh, as a child or at work. And um, what I want to do this morning is, is, since we're coming to the end of Colossians, is reconnect where we are in verses 2 through 6 with what is going on with the rest of the book. And so if you will, grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to, as a way of introduction, we're going to spend about five minutes this morning simply reviewing the book and bringing us back up to date, pulling us kind of out of the weeds and out of the micro and getting us the kind of the macro vision of Colossians for just a second as we dive back into the text. Colossians chapter 1, this is where Paul begins. He begins with what? A prayer. A prayer for the people asking that the truth of the gospel and that the knowledge of God would take hold in their lives and strengthen them in such a way that they would bear fruit in their lives. And then Paul, making sure that his own prayer is answered, then goes on beginning in verse 12, 13, 14, and then very clearly in verses 15 through 20 in this hymnic phrase by Paul, which was this hymn of the early church. He gives this great phrase extolling how great and awesome Christ is and its preeminence and his supremacy, articulating to the church at Colossae how great God is, articulating to them the gospel and the knowledge of God. And then what we see in the back half of the chapter is that Paul then says this, is that he jumps in and applies the greatness of God to their stories, that they were once a people who were far off from God, alienated from God's presence, but by the work of Jesus Christ, this preeminent one, they have been restored and reconciled to God's. So that they have relationship with him. And so what we saw at the end of chapter 1 is that Jesus is all we need. That if he is preeminent and he is supreme, that he is the one we need. And so we actually gave this little equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So that was chapter 1. Then Paul takes chapter 2 and he begins to address the specific issues that are going on in the church in Colossae. Which is false teachings legalistic and moralistic and earthly teachings, man-made religion that are seeking to actually derail the gospel message in the church 
and to get them off of Jesus plus nothing equals everything and onto Jesus plus religious traditions, Jesus plus law-keeping, Jesus plus asceticism equals everything. And so he takes all of chapter 2, essentially, to speak against these various forms of malignancy of the gospel. Then in chapter 3, he gets to, I think, the the heart and central of what he wants to talk about in verses 1 through 5. And he says this, that if in chapter 1, if who I have articulated, if Christ is who I've said he is, in verse 1, that he is the preeminent creator of all things, he is the recreator who has reconciled you to God, this is the incredible and beautiful truth, that you now are hidden in him, the supreme and preeminent one. That this is your objective reality now before God in heaven. This is your realistic state. That you are hidden in Christ Jesus, and he, by the Spirit of God, is hidden in you. And so he then takes that phrase in the early part of chapter 3 and articulates in general. He says that because of this, the old man in us, the, the, the old man who was controlled and led and ruled by sin, that man has been put to death. And instead, there is a new king and a new ruler in our life, the new man, which is who? It is Jesus himself. The preeminent supreme one has come to live inside of your heart and your life, and the new man more and more and more is being made manifest into a new life in Christ Jesus. Then he takes the back part of chapter 3, and then he gets specific, and he says this, that if the preeminent supreme one is Lord of your life and he is being made manifest in your life, this is what it will look like in these various relationships and these various roles. This is what your marriage will look like in your role as a husband or as a wife. This is what your role as a child will look like or as a parent and what your role is as an employer, employee or employer. But in all these things, that if it is Christ Jesus in whom we are hidden and it's Christ Jesus who lives in us and is being made manifest... When you live a life of godliness and holiness in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work life, whatever it may be, who gets revealed ultimately? Not necessarily you. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who is revealed. And this is what brings us to our text today. This is the junction box of all the points that Paul is making. He's bringing it to bear here in verses 2 through 6, in which he is calling us in this text. He's saying, in chapter 1, we've seen how great God is. And how your presence, your objective reality in him, in heaven, for all of eternity, is in him. And now what you are to be about is devoted, as devote your life to making this supreme, this preeminent Christ Jesus, known in every aspect of your life. So we're going to look at what Paul calls us to do in three ways. Three ways today in which we're to make Christ known. The supreme Christ known today through our Christian lives. First and foremost is simply this. And what we've kind of already articulated here at the beginning and as introduction, is the supremacy of Christ is first and foremost made known through your new life. Jesus is made great and he is exalted and he is glorified when your marriage is beautiful. Going back to those specific roles and relationships. When you are a wife whose husband who has not led you well, who has not, who has not um, been a perfectly holy man, who has been in many ways a failure as a husband, and yet you still, because of the power of Christ Jesus at work in you, love him and respect him and submit to his leadership anyways. You can only do that. That shows the power and the supremacy of Christ Jesus at rule in your life. When you're a husband whose wife does not submit to your leadership, who's controlling and nagging, is difficult to lead, who makes life miserable upon you, 
and yet you lay down your life, you wake up every day saying, how can I live like Jesus and die for my wife? That is a man in which the supremacy of Christ is being displayed and being made known. As parents, as children, if you're a child, you have parents who have terribly sinned against you, and you've had to forgive them, though, and you've had to seek to honor them and respect them and, and sometimes even obey them. In that, when you do that by the power of Jesus Christ, you display the supremacy of Jesus. You make him known. Where the world goes, that should not happen. That should, you, should, you should disrespect, you should dishonor those parents, and yet you honor them anyways. That's making Christ Jesus known. And all these changes in us, this new life in us that has worked within us where the old man is dead and the new man comes to life more and more and more, we make known to the world who Jesus is. Now, that is an enormous task, right? We spent essentially two months looking at the specifics of those roles and relationships, and they are monumental tasks. They are beyond us to live out the gospel as we ought to as loving husbands or as children or as parents or as workers and bosses. And so what do we need? We need God's help. And that's what leads us to verse 2. In order to have a life that displays the preeminent Christ Jesus, we must plead for his help. And this is what Paul says here. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If we're going to be a people who more and more in our lives are making Jesus Christ known, who, who more and more look like the image of Christ Jesus, then we must spend time with him in prayer. Now, this helps us center as to what prayer is. Prayer, we often think of Jesus and his God as simply the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky who we simply give our list of wants to him. And that's certainly appropriate in prayers to lay your requests and your needs before God. But ultimately, prayer changes you because, not because of what you get out of those prayers. Not whether he answers yes or no, but of who you encounter as you pray. In whose presence are you in when you pray? Paul says that in prayer, we are lingering in the presence of the one who made you. And when you spend time in God's presence, guess what? You look more like him. This is what Adam and Eve, before the fall, when they were living righteously before God, what, is it, what, what was the relationship like with God? It says literally in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it says that in Genesis 1, that they fellowship, that they koinoniaed with God that they walked closely with him, so much so that when they sinned and they hid from God and they didn't see him, it said that when they hid from him because they heard his very footsteps, they knew the pitter-patter of God's feet. That's how intimately they knew God. Moses, he knew God well, didn't he? When he went up on Mount Sinai and he asked for God's presence and he spent time intimately talking with God, what, did, what happened to Moses? The glory of God had so shone upon Moses that his face glowed that the people that they had to veil his face why? Because the glory of God, the preeminent beauty of who God is, was reflected off of who Moses was from spending time with God. You want to make Jesus know in your life, and you must encounter him in prayer. So the glow of all of his character, of his preeminence and his supremacy, is, 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 glows off of you and basks off of your, your very presence. And there's three ways here that Paul calls us to pray. Three ways in which if you want to be someone who day in and day out begins more and more in your life reflecting the very image of Jesus Christ, you got to pray these ways. And the first is this. He says, pray continually and steadfastly. That is persistently, consistently praying. You know the story of how the Beatles were discovered in the United States? 
They weren't very, they weren't well known at all. In fact, they were just this little ragtag band in the early 1960s from Liverpool, and no one from the United States had heard from the, of them except for, for some reason, a little 12 year old girl. And day in and day out, because she had somehow gotten a hold of the track of the Beatles, she called her local radio station and pestered the DJ there. Can you play the Beatles? Can you play the Beatles? Can you play the Beatles? And he's like, I don't know who these Beatles are. And so eventually, because of the persistence of this, time, this little girl, this little middle school girl, he eventually calls a friend in England and says, I don't know who these guys are, but can you please, just so I can get this girl off my back, can you please get me the track of this Beatle group? And they sent over a track of the Beatles, and in December of 1963, they play the Beatles for the first time, and the world goes crazy. I want to hold your hands. It came to America, why? Because of the persistence of a middle school girl. Here's the point. There's power in prayer, and particularly there's power in persistent prayer. That's what Jesus even talks about in Luke 18, where he says to keep coming to him and, and bringing your, your requests before him. And then he uses the parable saying that even he gives about a woman who came before a judge and pesters a judge over and over and over and over and over again until finally he'll hear her case and bring justice to her. And, God, and Jesus says, how much more will God answer your prayers? So be persistent, be steadfast, keep coming in day in and day out, seeking intimacy, seeking the very presence of God. In other words, keep on keeping on in regards to prayer. Matthew 7 says what? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's just another way of saying keep on keeping on. Keep praying for your marriage that it would reflect the, the, reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. That God's redemption through Jesus would be made whole in, in your life, in your parenting, in your work life. And as we pray, as we come day in and day out in persistent prayer, guess what happens? It won't happen quickly. There are no silver bullets in sanctification. But as you persistently come in day in and day out into God's presence and you encounter the risen living Lord, you become like him. So steadfastly praying. Second, he says, pray watchfully. This recalls Jesus' command to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, right? Jesus goes off to pray and he tells his disciples, pray with me. Why? So as to avoid temptation. Because it's so easy to fall into temptation in the same way here. That if you want to reflect the beauty and the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ Jesus in all these roles and relationships in your life, then you must be in prayer. Because prayer was one of the central and primary means in which the Spirit of God speaks to us and convicts our hearts of the ways in which we are not living that way. For so many of us today, we are so busy. And the reason why we can't pray is because we're addicted to the noise, to the speed, and to the movement of life. But in prayer, we get silent, and suddenly we can hear the screaming voice of the Spirit. And in, we not only encounter the beauty of Jesus Christ as we pray and encounter who he is, but we also get to hear about how we are not that. We come face to face with glory, and we see just how unglorious we really are, and so we get convicted the Holy Spirit warns us of the various areas in which we are under temptation. And Paul, what he is bringing out here, how serious this is, is he is connecting warlike images. Remember in chapter 3, he says, put to death. And then here he says, be watchful. These are war images. That we must be a people who are constantly on guard. Be watchful in prayer. Prayer is the means of looking out for the temptations in our life that would discredit Jesus in us. That would veil the glory and beauty of Jesus being made manifest in our lives. The third way in which we're supposed to pray that leads us to a life that 
reveals Christ and makes him known is that we are praying thankfully. Four times in this short section, chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, and now here in chapter 4, Paul says is that we are to pray with thanksgiving. Now there is a connection between being somebody who gets the gospel and somebody who is thankful. You see, in chapter 3, he focuses so much on praying with thanksgiving because he's just articulated this unbelievable truth that you are hidden in Christ Jesus that, that blows our minds. That we have intimate communion with the triune God now. That we are hidden in him and connected to him. And when you get that, when that becomes the paradigm of your life, and when you come to him in prayer and you experience that intimacy, you inherently, you must become grateful. It is a natural outflow of getting the gospel and getting the implications of our connection and our intimacy with Christ Jesus. But it goes the other way as well. It goes the other way as well. Because even as we go into prayer, so often if you're like me, we don't feel that intimacy, do we? It's the, the truth, and you're even hearing it today, I'm trying, I'm, with excitement in my voice, I'm trying to say, this is a big deal. That you're hidden in Christ Jesus, but our hearts are cold to it so often. Or the, the, the wonder and awe of it, the amazement of it isn't often there. And so what do we have to do? We have to thank ourselves we have to thank our, be thankful through the gospel to the point where we sense and experience once again the power of these truths. And so, may I dare say, one of the best practices you can do in being a person who becomes, who becomes more and more like Jesus is you give thanks. And here's what happens, and here's how it makes Christ known in your life. Because if you're somebody who has come, come to terms with the magnitude of God's grace for you, that you were in such a place that you were running from God as fast as you possibly could, that you didn't deserve his grace and mercy. And not only did you get his mercy, but not only that, but he brought you into intimate relationship with him. That, when that blows your mind, when you get a sense and a taste and experience of that, guess what happens? You begin to show that to your spouse. You, get, you begin to express and, and, and communicate that same graciousness, that same pursuit that God has extended to you. That your spouse, who doesn't deserve intimacy with you, you give it to them anyways. That's the love of God the Father. And when you get that, to the degree that you get that, and understand this hiddenness in Christ Jesus, and all the profound riches that are in that, then you can actually begin to make Christ known in your life. So that's the first point. Supremacy of Christ is made known in our lives, and so we better be praying. The second is this. The supremacy of Christ is made known... In this way, through gospel proclamation. Verse 3 and verse 4. At the same time, Paul says, at the same time, not only pray for yourselves, but pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The key point of this text is what Paul is asking for is that the Colossian church would pray that the, for an open door to do what? To declare the mystery of Christ. Now what is that? What is the mystery of Christ? Paul uses this language seven times in his letters to the various churches. He actually talks about it and uses the same language in Colossians chapter 1. Pick it up in verse 25 and reading through verse 27. We see what he means by the mystery of Christ. I became a minister, he says in verse 25, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Here he is. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, 
but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then he answers, what is the mystery? It's this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says this, that when all, all the longings of the prophets of the Old Testament, all the longings of the people of God for all of human history, that this is the, the, the mystery that is being revealed, that they didn't have, but you get to know the mystery. And it wasn't the butler in the kitchen with the candlestick. It was Jesus on the cross who's come to live in your hearts. That's the mystery that has been revealed. That sweet truth that he is hidden in us and we are in him. And when we get this, Paul says in chapter 1 there that these are the riches of this mystery. This is like the picture that you get when you're watching Pirates of the Caribbean or some pirate film where they, they enter into the cave and what it looks like, that the gold that is just overflowing, which means this, the riches of this mystery that you can bask on this truth for the rest of your Christian life. And that, that is exactly what the Christian life is, to coming to a fuller and fuller understanding of this sweet truth. And Paul says that it's these riches, that this incredible news that I want to proclaim to a lost and broken world. That we make Christ known. All, all the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the shadows of the law, all the sacrificial practices, all the commandments, all the prophets of old point and make Jesus known. And so when you make Christ known, you've, making, you've made all the scriptures known. He is the best interpretive principle that there is. And so Paul, because Paul wants to see Jesus made known, this beautiful truth that Christ has come to live in us, what does he ask for? Just like with us, he asks for us to pray. And to pray for whom? To pray for him as he does what? As he proclaims this mystery, as he makes it and reveals it to the world. And Paul says he prays really two things as we pray for his work. And this is a good, a good paradigm for how we should pray for missionaries, for church planners, and yes, for even the way you can pray for me. The first is this, Paul prays that God would open doors. Paul realizes this, that evangelism is fruitless, that he can preach till he's blue in the face, but unless God sovereignly moves to open doors to hearts and lives, there will be no fruit. No one will be saved. The work of God always precedes successful evangelism. God is the God who opens doors. And this is one of those phrases about God opening doors that we talk about in the Christian world, Christian subculture, and we don't even realize necessarily maybe that, that it's, it's very clearly in the scriptures. In fact, it's a theme that comes up all over the place in the New Testament, particularly in Pauline writings and talking about Paul's work in the church in Acts and in Corinth. For example, a couple of passages of this, in, in Acts 14 it says, And when the church gathered together, they reported how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In Acts 16, it says that God is the one who opened Lydia's heart. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says that he's going to remain in Ephesus because God has opened wide a door for the gospel to be proclaimed. And even we see this at the end of all things, right? In Revelations 2, there is one who needs to open the door, and it is the Lamb who opens the door, it says. It is not ultimately us who opens the door. It is God and God himself who opens the door to the human heart so that people might be saved. Unless God sovereignly acts, unless he sovereignly and preveniently, that is, first acts on someone's heart, no one will ever believe. 
So God is the reason for successful evangelism, so Paul prays and starts there. He says, plead, get on your knees, pleading that God would open doors for me to go proclaim the gospel. That's the first thing he says. Now the other side of the coin. He says this. Now pray also, pray also that he would have gospel clarity. That he would be able to communicate the gospel with clarity. What do we see here? We see man's efforts mixed with the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign ultimately over salvation, but he is, he is he's the one who ordains the ends, but he's also the one who ordains the means. And that the means by which he uses is the hard labor and the good proclamation and the skilled proclamation and the fruitful proclamation of those who preach his words. Pray for clear. What is Paul? He's what he's asking for here. He's praying for the ability to speak other people's language, to speak the gospel clarity in a clear way to them, in a way that is not boring. I think it was Spurgeon who said it is a sin to make the gospel boring. And Paul doesn't want to make the gospel boring, nor does he want to make it muddled or muddy. He wants to make it clear. And so, he, and so I, I would ask the same thing for me. Yes, pray that I would, I would preach the crunchy truth, the, the principles of God's word faithfully, but also pray that I would preach with clarity. I would pray in a way that you can understand. When you go to a restaurant, you don't ask the chef of a five-star restaurant to cook your filet well done. That takes no skill to burn a steak, does it? You just put a fire really high and you burn the steak. But that doesn't taste good, does it? No, you're supposed to have a steak. How are you supposed to have a steak? We all know this, right? This is part of your discipleship. Medium rare, people. And so a good chef, as well a good preacher, is they will cook up God's word, medium rare, so that it's clear and so that it tastes good because the fragrance of Jesus tastes good. So pray that I would make it clear. Pray that missionaries and church planters would make God's word clear. Now, if God is sovereign, we just ask this question, why does he need me to speak, and why does he need you to pray? And I obviously don't have time to get into this too deeply, but I simply say that what I said just a few minutes ago, which is this, that God has both purposed the ends by which he brings people to salvation and by which he opens doors, and he also has ordained the means. And he brings about the means by stirring his people up, stirring in your hearts a desire and longing for lost people and for the proclamation of the gospel that you would pray heard one pastor put it this way. I think it's so great. He said, the muscles of omnipotence, the muscles of, of omnipotence are moved by a thin nerve called prayer. Tweak, tweak God's nerve. Tweak the nerves of omnipotence in prayer. Pray, pray for your relatives and for your city and for the skilled proclamation of the gospel. One final thing on this point. <clears throat> Notice what Paul doesn't ask for here. He articulates, he says, I'm preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and that's what his focus is. But he also just throws out there really quickly, that's why I'm in chains. But he doesn't pray to be released from prison, does he? See, this is, I think this is helpful for us. Listen, it's, I think it's fine to pray for missionaries and church planters and pastors' needs in the Christians and persecuted churches. Pray for their needs, but pray ultimately for this, that the gospel would go forward. You've heard, I've heard numerous accounts of people who have gone to speak to pastors in China, and particularly pastors of the underground church, and many of them have been arrested. Some of them multiple times have been arrested over the years for their faith and for preaching the gospel. And I have heard this account on numerous occasions in which the pastors pray, what they say is, please don't pray that the persecution would stop. Because in the midst of persecution, the gospel always thrives. 
This is, the, this is the, the, the theme of human history, of church history, is that when the church, not when it has all the power, but when it is being trying to be crushed by those who are in authority, that the gospel churches thrive and the gospel goes forward. In fact, we found this, the stats would show for the last 20 to 30 years that even the underground church, which has been under intense persecution, that the rate at which people are coming to know the Lord in China is at a rate of 10,000 people every single day. And we want them not to have to go to jail. Sure, pray for their physical needs, that's great. But pray, as Paul asked to be prayed for, is for the proclamation of the gospel. The third way to make the supremacy of Christ known in your life is through our relationships with outsiders. Pick it up in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walk in wisdom with outsiders. Who are outsiders? That's almost offensive, isn't it? That's pretty intolerant. Yeah, outsiders, well, we don't know. We, we often call people non-believers. We don't necessarily know who the believers and non-believers are. He's writing to a church. So who are the outsiders? Those who are not part of God's visible church, his covenant community, those who have uh, publicly professed faith. And so you can call them the unchurched, the non-churched, the de-churched, whatever it may be. Those who don't go to church, you, they are the outsiders. And so you're to walk in wisdom towards them. Understand this, what Paul's saying. He says, listen, pray for me as I proclaim the gospel. But then he turns and faces you guys, doesn't he? He said, listen, it is not simply your preacher's job to proclaim the gospel. It is the priesthood of all believers to proclaim the gospel. You don't pay me to do all the evangelistic work for you. You pay me to get you ready to go do the evangelistic work. So I preach to you the gospel so you, may can, take, you can take it out and you can know it so sweetly in your own life. And proclaim it to your neighbors and to your friends. And see and hear, and, and, and hear the sense of urgency that Paul has here and this need for us to walk in this way with outsiders. And to speak in gracious way towards outsiders. <clears throat> in verse 5 he says this, making best use of the time. Now what does that mean? Literally, the word there that undergirds that phrase, making best use of the time, is the same word for redeeming. That we, What Paul is saying here is that we are to redeem the time. Now there are two major words in Greek for time. There is chronos time, which is like tick, 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 tick time, right? It's the sequence of events time, right? But then there's what is called kairos time. And kairos is the Greek word for good or right. And Paul uses here is in making best use of the kairos time. It is the good time. In other words, what he's saying is this. Now is the moment. Now is the moment to reach your neighbor's. We are to redeem the time. We are to make best use of this moment, not to let it pass us by. Think about this. Think about my, my wife and my mother-in-law once had this experience where they're going to shop at a, a, one of those huge kind of blowout sales at an art store where a Thomas Kincaid painting, I don't think it was original, but it was like one of the, the main big prints, and they were normally going for thousands of dollars, and they were going to be sold for $500. And there was a line of people as they walked in there. And in, in, in probably mostly women, and the doors opened, and what happens? Everybody rushes in, and it, what Meredith said is that you didn't have a time or to, the choice as to which painting you were going to get. You simply had to grab whatever you could get your hands on. You experienced this on Black Friday, maybe? Being almost trampled? Those people are making use of the time. They're saying, this sale lasts today, and that is it. 
It is the businessman who says, listen, the company that I want to buy into their stock and have ownership in their company, their stock has just fallen, and so I'm going to buy it right now, everything I can get, because this moment may pass me by. That's Kairos time. That's what Paul is talking about here. And this is the case now, even eschatologically, that is in regards to the the scope of all of human history, that this time, since Jesus has come, is the time of grace, in which we get to come. Jesus came saying, I came to preach, to seek and save the lost, to preach grace and mercy, but there is a time in which he will come back and he will do something different. He will preach judgment. He will come to lay out judgment on this world. But this time, we preach grace. This time we preach his loving grace to us and we give that to the world because this time will not always last. So that's what I call to you. Redeem the time. Redeem the time in your various relationships. This is the moment. This, you, have one, you have this moment. This is the Kairos time to reach your neighbors with the gospel. Parents, you have a few years with your children. This is the time. Husbands and wives, God has given you this time. Your marriage is broken. This is the time to redeem it to make Christ supreme and make him known in your marriage by proclaiming the gospel and living out the gospel. This is the time to reach out to those at your workplace. This is the time. Don't wait. Now, therefore, if we're going to be wise in our relationships and make best use of the time, what must we do? you got to speak. Wolf, right? Speak. St. Francis of Assisi said this, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Now, this is one of the most abused quotes of all of time. Now, for two reasons. One, because St. Francis of Assisi never said it. We don't think. And then two, because it is by design a hyperbolic statement that discredits the, in the preeminence of the verbal proclamation of the gospel. That what we see in the scriptures in gospel proclamation is supposed to be word and deed. We just talked about this. The first point is that you're to live lives that manifest Jesus Christ, that make him known in your life. So yes, deeds matter. But words really matter too. It is not an either or with words or deeds. It is a both ands in the proclamation of the gospel. We must do both. And so we got to open our mouths and pull up our type pads and take the lid off the pen and we have to speak the gospel. We have to proclaim it to those around us. But it's incredible importance not just that we speak, right? But it's also important how we speak. That's what Paul addresses the last little bit. Paul gives us three descriptions of our speech in proclaiming the gospel. Three descriptions. The first is this. He says, speak a speech that is gracious. A speech that is gracious. Church, this ought to be what we are known for, is gracious speech, even to those we disagree with. Whether it be their lifestyle, or their philosophy, or their religion. This has happened so many times, I could take any number of illustrations from churches I'll take this one of a woman who showed up at a particular church and she had lived a difficult life. that She had been under abuse. She was falling on difficult times and she had gone to, a, to church as a child and she said, I'm going I'm to go to church this Sunday because I, I need the Lord's. And she showed up to a church, but I, I many people who have uh, difficulties in life, she needed a fix. And so right before the church service started, she stepped outside the door and to get that nicotine fix in order to sit down for an hour, hour and a half, she smoked a cigarette right outside the door and there to greet her was a, was a wonderful man who grabbed her and rebuked her. Awesome. Awesome. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is offensive enough because it communicates that we are unable to save ourselves, and that's offensive. 
The woman told that pastor that day that she loved his sermon, she loved the worship service, but she wasn't sure she could ever come back because of the way that man had spoken to her. Brothers and sisters, we need not add offense to the gospel. It's offensive enough on its own merits. By the very nature of what we're telling people, the gospel of Christ is pure and beautiful, but we can foul it up with our ad hominem arguments. You know what ad hominem is? It's when you attack the person instead of their arguments. Here's, here's an example of an ad hominem. Ad hominem argument is you don't like the president's policies, and so you put a picture of his wife in an unflattering way on Facebook. That's attacking the person instead of the arguments. That's an ad hominem argument. It's a logical fallacy. It's not gracious, nor is it very persuasive. It doesn't win anybody over to anything. So I heard one person say this, that so often that where the gospel is pure and beautiful, that we have added the nasty human B.O. <laughs> the gospel is fragrant, but we've asked, added the nasty human B.O. of our terrible theology. We become offensive how? What are the ways in which we do this? The harshness in our voice, by always being critical, by constantly critiquing. But here's the prominent way. Listen, in regards to culture and to speaking to other people, here's the issue, is we don't give the whole gospel. And in which all we give is law. And we don't give Jesus. Listen, that, that is an ungracious... If all you ever give people is law and hell, that's not gracious, is it? It smells like it's, it's, a, it's a fragrance of death. If you're going to be gracious, you can't simply give them the law. You can't simply call people out on, on their sins and the culture out for its problems. You must also articulate the beauty of Jesus Christ. As has been said so many times, we are to share the gospel as a beggar to other beggars simply try where the bread is. And brothers and sisters, I feel like so often I fail in leading you in this. In my desire to speak with clarity the gospel and to sometimes bring the gospel home in sweet, in right application, I think so often my example to you is one who speaks the gospel with harshness and with anger. And so don't take my example. Said, hear my repentance of such a thing and speak with more graciousness than I so often do from up here. We're to share, as Isaiah says, he said this, those who bring the gospel, blessed are the feet of those whose feet bear the glad tidings of what God has done. When we bring the gospel, we are to have happy feet, brothers and sisters. We are to dance the gospel in the people's lives with sweet words, with graciousness. The second is this, that if we're to articulate the gospel, we must speak with seasoned, a speech that is seasoned with salt. Salt, why would they use salt in the ancient Near East? They would use salt for two reasons. One, to preserve, and second, to flavor, to make the food more palatable. Now, we are most familiar with this particular verbiage from Matthew 5, where it's Jesus says there that we are the salt of the world and we are not to lose our saltiness. Now, my understanding of Matthew 5 is this. It, it comes from the actual next word picture that he uses. He said, you're the salt of the world, but then he also goes on to say that you're the light of the world and that you're to let your light shine before men so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so to lose your saltiness is to mean that you have no good works no good words. So don't share heavenly truths with a rotten tongue or with a rotten life. Proverbs says that we are far more persuasive when we use both sweet words and a sweet life. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can contradict the sinful lives of those around us in proclaiming the gospel. We can even be stern. I have to be stern with my children as I give them the gospel sometimes. We can, be, we can, be, we can stand with principle, but so often what we do is we go off into a rotten life. 
We proclaim the gospel without love or without gentleness or without peace. Would you add salt to your speech? The salt of a good and beautiful and peaceful life. This is the, the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, who I've mentioned here before. Rosaria Butterfield was a, um, a, a professor at Syracuse University. She was living a lesbian lifestyle, had multiple long-term lesbian relationships. She was the head of, in her words, in the, the words of the university, the head of queer studies at Syracuse University. In the process of writing a book, and her book, well, the theme of it was, Why Do Evangelicals Hate Gay People? She decided she was going to write a book about that. She better hang out with some evangelicals. And so she began getting dinner with a man named Ken Smith, a Presbyterian pastor in her city. And over, over the course of a number of, of, of meals in her time with Ken Smith, she became more and more convinced of the gospel. That in these conversations, she came to a place eventually of repentance. She abandoned her lesbian lifestyle. She left her job. And actually, where her life eventually was, went is she married a pastor. And now she's one of the church's most articulate voices on how to love people in a homosexual lifestyle. But what changed her? She said as she ate dinner with Ken Smith, week in and week out, it was the way that he spoke and the way that she, he lived. That he, would, he was so loving to her even as he addressed her concerns and her objections to the gospel. And she said in particular his prayers are what changed her. That as he prayed to God, he prayed with such intimacy in his relationship with God and also with such a sense that he would repent of his sins in front of her. You see, a speech that is salted with great saltiness is a life in which the Presbyterian pastor repents of his sins in front of the lesbian woman. That is a life that is flavored with salt. That is a life where you live with vulnerability and that becomes attractive for the gospel. So salt your life with the salt of good works, of love and peace. The third is this. The third in gospel proclamation in our own life, we have a speech that is, I'll use this word, apt. Apt. Which means right, appropriate. Verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, Paul says. I wanted to say contextualize irrelevant, and I'll get back to the contextualize irrelevant thing in just a second. I do think those are both appropriate, but I want to go with apt. You see, because it says this in Proverbs. It says in 1523 of Proverbs, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. The gospel should be joyous, and therefore our answers to people's objections should be joyous. In Proverbs 25, 11, it says this, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word rightly or aptly spoken. Now there's a flow to verse 6 that I want you to see. It begins here, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then it says this, so that, in order that, we be gracious and we season our speech with a salty life of good works, in order that, so that you may have an answer for people. Now here's what I, I think Paul is getting to here. That if our speech is gracious and loving and kind and our life is full of love and peace and kindness, that we invite conversation People invite us into their lives. We win a hearing for the gospel. But not only that, not only do we win a hearing for the gospel, but we listen to them. We hear the questions that they need answered. So often the difficulty and the reason why we give all the wrong answers is because we are, we are answering questions that our culture and the people of this world are not asking. We're so loud trying to give our answers that we're not listening to the issues that people actually have, and so we are to listen to them. And this is where the area of contextualization matters, that we are to contextualize the gospel proclamation 
specifically into people's lives, into the great questions that they are asking. The great Francis Schaeffer, who helped uh, the church so wonderfully understand culture and how to speak into it with a Christian worldview, said this, Christianity demands that we have enough compassion to learn the questions of every generation. Hear what he means? That if all we're doing is simply giving our, our rote answers, and we're not actually listening to the heart cries of the people that we're around, we're not actually going to answer their objections and the questions that they need answered. And the gospel won't be rightly applied to them. He goes on to say this, but we need to care so much about the souls of the people in our culture that we get to know them and their hang-ups to the Christian, the Christian life, their objections and their problems. Do you listen first and speak second? Too often we care more about the problems in people's lives than the people themselves. And so we don't contextualize the gospel. Textualization, it's got a bad word in our, in our circles, but it should not have. Tim Keller says this, this is how he defines contextualization. He says, contextualization is not, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not want to hear at all. The questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in a language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. Let me layer that quote with this quote from Blaise Pascal in his book, Pensates. He says this, Men despise religion. They hate it, and yet they fear it is true. To remedy this, we must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is venerable, that means to inspire respect for it. Then we must make it lovable, to make good men hope it is true. Then finally, we must prove it is true. Do you hear what he's saying? That to proclaim the gospel, that when we proclaim the beauty of Jesus, we are to so articulate the gospel to make it applicable to people's lives to say, oh my goodness, that's the story that I need. That's the kind of savior that I need. That even if they walk away saying, I don't believe, that they would walk away saying, I wish I could believe it. That I wish there really was a Savior like this. Make the gospel beautiful. You know, this is what Paul does. He contextualizes the gospel in order to make it beautiful to people. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I become all things to all people that I might win some. And so would you lay down your pride? Would you be willing to listen? And would you speak an apt word to those who so desperately need it? I aim at this, which is a question and objection that so often many of us would have, which is this. It says there that we just have to have the right, have to have the right answer, to give an, a, a, an apt answer to the issues. And for many of us, that, that, that concerns us, and what we think immediately of is Ravi Zacharias, that we all have to be Ravi Zacharias, that we have to be able to give all the apologetically appropriate answers, and listen, you should work hard. You should listen to Ravi Zacharias. You should study. That's wonderful. Read the books. Listen to the podcast. That's great. But understand this, that what God is calling you to be is a witness, not necessarily an expert witness. There's a difference between a witness and an expert witness. A witness is this, is a guy who's driving along the road and he sees one guy pull out a gun and shoot another guy. And when he goes to trial, the defense attorney trying to defend his client comes to you and says, I'm going to try to discredit this guy, who's this witness. And so he, he asks you what caliber gun it was, and you go, I don't know. What, 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 was, what, what was the type of bullet he used? I got no idea. He goes, Your Honor, this man is not an expert witness. And you would just simply lift up your hands and say, I'm simply telling you what I have seen. Well, this is what, what God calls us to do. and what, This is what the beggar, the blind man in John 9 says. 
We, he says this, this is his witness and this is his testimony. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. You can be as smart as you can be, but one thing you must know for sure is that Jesus is preeminent in your life, that you were once blind, but now you see. And so may we be a people who graciously and lovingly and winsomely and aptly say, I was blind. Will you now see? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, um, I know that my own heart in regards to anything about it smells of evangelism um, brings up condemnation for me. The, the, the natural response inside of me is to go, oh man, I haven't prayed about these issues in my life and forever. And I can't remember the last time I prayed for a missionary. And goodness gracious, I don't even know my neighbor's name and I've known him, he's been next to me for 12 years. God, I, I pray that you would convict us. Convict us by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Lord, lead us not to the depression and the despair of condemnation. And say, Lord, convict our spirits and do what we so desperately need to do for the world, which is send your spirit to whisper to us, to whisper the greatness of who Jesus is, of your forgiveness for us, of your worthiness, of your supremacy, of how awesome you are. And as we bask more and more in the gospel, as we come to understand that more and more, that we would then inevitably, inherently then turn around and express that to our neighbors, that we would be compelled, not by condemnation, not by duty, but by love for you, to reach those around us with an apt and relevant and sweet word that comes from Jesus. Graciously, Father, I pray that we would also go home today, though, that we would be specific that you would give us two, three, four, five names of people that we want to pray for, that we want to pursue, that we want to speak the love of Jesus Christ to. So gracious God, I pray that 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 that, that you would give us opportunities for that. I pray that dangerous prayer for these folks. I pray that for myself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.